This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 87. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I have something new and fun and bookish to tell you about. My first book is coming out this September. It's called Reading People, How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Personality Changes Everything. And to get us all in the right frame of mind, I just published a personality quiz on my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy. It's a reading personality quiz, and it's fast and free and easy to take, and hopefully a lot of fun as well. Go to modernmrsdarcy.com slash quiz to find out which one of nine reading personality types best describes you. If you want to know more, I made a class for you where I spend an hour diving deeper into all nine types and I give each set of readers their own book recommendations. That class is available for purchase in the shop at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash shop. It's $15 there. Or you can get it for free when you pre-order Reading People. You also get a free audiobook download of the book when it comes out on September 19th when you save your receipt and give it to my publisher. Go to readingpeoplebook.com, enter your receipt information there, and you will get instant access to the class plus that free audiobook download when it comes out on September 19th. This is a terrific deal. I'm so excited they were able to do this for you guys. And it's a rare opportunity to get the book in two different versions plus my reading personality class at no additional cost. You just pay for the book. Thanks so much for your support of my first book, Reading People, coming on September 19th. Today, I'm talking with Erin White, a runner, content developer, INTJ, and married father of two who lives in Minnesota. Aaron's taste in books is broad, but he leans towards books with elements of the fantastical. And in this episode, we explore why that is. He also really loves just a good story, especially a story with an adventure. Today, we talk about Aaron's favorites, of course, and I think his lifetime favorite book will make some of you jump up and cheer and maybe make some of you yell back at your podcast player and not in a happy way. We talk about that awful feeling when you've read what feels like a bunch of underwhelming books all in a row. And we discuss how when Aaron chooses to add a book to his permanent collection in his personal library, it's a really big deal. This is a lot of fun. Let's get to it. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to talk to you. So where are you this morning? This morning, I am in my office in Minneapolis, just south of downtown. The land of 10,000 bookstores. Or lakes, you know, whatever. Well, you, I, maybe we're swimming in books. I don't I don't know. I like that metaphor. But you do have more than your fair share of indies, it seems, in the Twin Cities area. 
It does seem like it. I actually live out in the suburbs, so I don't. Uh, most of the indies are are clustered in areas that I don't usually end up visiting uh, during my off hours. But uh, I know we have quite a few. Is it that kind of thing? Like I live in Louisville, so I could go to the Kentucky Derby all the time. So why go? Why go this year? Like it's always going to be there waiting for me. Pretty much, yeah. People people always think, for example, oh, you must be at the Mall of America all the time. I'm like, no, I actually actually avoid it as much as I can. <laughs> so I think we've already hit on the three things Minneapolis is known for. The bookstores, the lakes, and the Mall of America. And winter, but we don't talk about that. Oh, I wouldn't dream of bringing that up. Although I must say where I am in the Upper South, I needed a sweatshirt this morning because it was in the 50s and I thought it was heavenly. But it was novel to me. That's great. I remember I went to camp in northern Minnesota when I was a kid, and it was so weird to me coming from the upper south because I needed two different wardrobes, one one like for pre-lunch and then one mid-afternoon. And then it when the sun started going down, you'd have to change back into your jeans and wool sweater. Oh, yes. I actually moved to Minnesota from Lexington, Kentucky, and um, I was surprised about the weather as well. So you know. Okay. What brought... What brought you to Minnesota? Uh, my dad changed jobs. Um, I was uh, 12 at the time. <laughs> yeah, it was just a job change. There's nothing else really exciting about it. So this goes way back. This wasn't a recent move you made with agency as an adult. No, nope. I was along for the ride. It was back in the mid 90s. <laughs> a common story. I assume your relationship with books goes way back. Right. Uh, no, I've been reading as long as I can remember and I always was a fairly fast reader. It was always one of my, you know, top hobbies. Um, but now with kids and with other things in my life, um, it's, it's hard to find books that I really feel were worth my time to read. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of things that I enjoy when I read them, but they're also fairly forgettable. And I sort of, I want to make sure that both for myself and for other people that, you know, if you pick up a book, it was a good one. I resonate with that. Okay. For those of us who don't have children or who completely lack imagination, why do kids get a bad rap when it comes to uh, your reading life? Well, uh, they take up, for me at least, they take so much more of my time or, or even, and this is a good thing, but I'm reading to them instead of to myself um, and, and Previously, you know, I would come home from work, we'd have dinner, and then we'd have the whole evening in which I could spend an hour or two even reading. And now that's time spent cleaning up from dinner and having bedtimes and all of that. So evenings have other responsibilities now, and that's good. But still trying to maintain that priority of reading has been interesting. So can you remember a time, because I'm imagining that this has happened to you, where you finished a book and gone, you know what? Like maybe I should have just watched that ball game because this was not worth it. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of stubborn when it comes to books. I've only recently started giving myself permission to abandon them if they're not working out for me. What changed? Um, actually, you know, I was listening to to you and some of your guests talk about that that same thing uh, last year throughout the year and realizing. There are so many books and my list is so long. I don't owe this book anything <laughs> to to see it through. You know, I appreciate all the work the author put into it, but if it's not for me, it's not for me and that's okay. I think I'm tracking with you here because I can think of a half dozen books I've read since Christmas where at about page 40, I can see that this is not going to be a book that I love or that necessarily I'm glad I read. But 
with a book like this, it usually has good narrative drive, even if it's not a book I'd finish and be like, that was a good book. And so I just don't put it down. No, exactly. To be able to to say, okay, that was that was a book that was worth my time and not have that the reader regret of that took a lot of my hours and I really don't have much to show for it. It's not going to be one that I recommend. It's not going to be one, like you said, that maybe even if you hate it, at least you have some strong feelings about it. But I feel like the worst thing is to, to have a book that kept you coming back to it, but about which you're utterly ambivalent by the end of it. I know. Like I hate sticking out a book and then having my reaction be meh, like the three letters that condemn any book review. Yep. Well, that was definitely a book. That's all I can say. It was a book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Aaron, when you're reading, what kind of books do you feel yourself drawn towards? Um, I read pretty broadly. Um, and so it, it kind of depends on my mood. I'm always excited for that moment when I finish a book and then I get to go pick out another one. Because for me, I, I'm I'm one of those e-reader fans where because I can instantly check out my next book from the library digitally as soon as I finish one. Uh, it's exciting to go in there and see which ones on my wish list are available for me right now. Um, and so maybe it'll be a classic that I've had on my list for a while and haven't had time for, or made time for, or been in the mood for, or maybe it'll be something that has been a really uh, discussed, you know, very, a um, lot of people's favorite that I hadn't had the chance to get to yet because it was checked out all the time and that suddenly is available. Uh, for me, it, it's all kinds of different things and it really just depends a lot on my mood. Um, I've been trying to get more into nonfiction lately and find nonfiction that I enjoy. And that has been a lot of um, like Bill Bryson or uh, I read uh, Born to Run by Christopher McDougall, uh, some things like that. It was awesome for me as a runner. Um, I, I would say it kind of changed my my way of doing things. Um, but historically, I've not been a nonfiction person. So that's been a fun adventure to find nonfiction that I enjoy. Otherwise, I like just good adventure stories, whether they're 200 years old or completely modern, something that is exciting and interesting, but has some substance to it beyond the plot, something that says something about life. What sent you down the nonfiction trail? Here again, I think listening to some of the, the nonfiction recommendations that were coming up on what should I read next made me realize, oh, it's not all boring. <laughs> it's not all history or self-help or, or there's you know narrative nonfiction. Um, I read Dead Wake after I heard about it on this show. And that was, again, like, oh, this is, this is really captivating. I had no idea a, a history book could be this interesting. That's funny because Jessica Turner, who I recommended that to, came back later in one of our recap episodes and said, oh, what I've learned is I do not like this kind of nonfiction. I hated this book. So live and learn, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. So with nonfiction, it's like you understood that there weren't two choices, like engaging story or dry textbook. Exactly. That was surprisingly fairly revelatory for me at this stage of my life, you would think that I'd maybe have figured that out before now, but I hadn't. And so that was really a, a fun thing. Sometimes I think I have, I have too many continuing adventures and missing the obvious. So I am empathetic to that. That's small, but like where, how, how did I not see this before? That's something I ask myself a lot. Yeah, I definitely. Okay. So you said adventure stories are 
you didn't use the word favorite, but it sounds like as we think about maybe what's put in your reading list today, that concept of the adventure is going to be really big. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, that's I, I didn't have that planned when I was picking out my three favorites. But as I look at them, that's sort of a, a big thread that I see. Um, so I guess that's maybe something that uh, resonates with where I'm at right now. What are the other threads you see in your favorites? Or, or do you see commonalities in them? Um, well, so, I mean, maybe as a subset of adventure, at least in two of the three sort of, uh, the, the, the protagonist's journey, you know, the, the transformation of the, the hero, I, I do enjoy that a lot. I like to see growth in characters. Yeah. I, I, I think about some of the books that have impacted me over the years. Um, and, and, you know, some of the, the perennial classics, Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings or some newer ones. Um, I, I really liked The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which I know has come up recently on the show. Um, that one for me was the most Narnia-esque novel that I've read in a long time. And it just, all of these books have the hero's journey in it, in them, but they also have just a tremendous uh, beauty to them in the way that they talk about the world that they're creating or in the kinds of messages that they're trying to convey and how they phrase them. That's yeah. I, I, I look for that. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm dying to hear more about your favorites. Are you ready to get to it? I am. If you are. Okay. Aaron, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate and what you've been reading lately. And then we'll talk about what you should read next. Aaron, let's get into your favorites. What's book one? So uh, all my favorites are ones that have earned their place on my bookshelf over the years. And and this is a relatively recent edition, even though it's a not a brand new book, but uh, it's called The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. Uh, it's actually book one of a series. Um, there's three books total in the series so far. And it's it's going to be a little hard to summarize the plot because there's a lot of twists and turns, which I really like. Uh, but it's it's the story of an orphan named Locke Lamora, who is uh, selected to join a band of uh, thieves, uh, pickpockets. Uh, they're known as the Gentleman Bastards. Uh, and they're, of course, the best at what they do in their city. Um, but also, of course, uh, their heists and capers sometimes go wrong. And there is a new threat in town to the established order of things, both for the, the city's underworld, where they're used to hanging out, and among the ruling elite. And this threat essentially forces Locke and his companions to um, begrudgingly and not even remotely altruistically try to save the day, or at least themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit like Robin Hood and a bit like Ocean's Eleven. It gets compared to those things a lot. And uh, I think they're, they're pretty apt comparisons. Okay, now that wasn't bad. Okay, I have a theory about fantasy book descriptions. And I'm curious to hear what you think as someone who reads a lot more in that specific genre than I do. So many times it seems like a book description like on Goodreads or Barnes and Noble goes into great detail using words you've never heard on every line about all the characters you've never met before and the names of countries or lands or planets or whatever that don't actually exist. So you're not familiar with them. Um, and so they're telling you how scandalous it was when so-and-so betrayed so-and-so, but you don't know who those people are and you don't care. But if you tell me this novel is amazing it has wonderful world building. And if you like 
the Chronicles of Narnia, but you want a grown-up version with a dash of Neil Gaiman, just read it. Then I will. Do you think that's a fair description that like so many people who don't know fantasy well as a genre can find those plot descriptions really opaque? Or does that peg me out as someone who doesn't know enough about the genre? No, I would definitely agree. I think a lot of times fantasy writers themselves even get caught up in the elements of the genre instead of why people come to it. So, you know, the elements being um, unusual races of beings, or like you said, like crazy places or magic and how it works and all of that stuff, instead of focusing on interesting characters and, you know, plot points that people can relate to and get excited about. And so, yeah, I think when I read a book description and it's, it's all about the, the stuff and not about the people, it, it definitely has a tendency to, to push me away from it. Okay. So you said that sometimes fantasy writers get caught up with the elements of the genre instead of the reason that people come to it. But what do you think is the reason that people come to it? I mean, there's certainly all kinds of reasons, and I wouldn't want to assume anybody's reason for for why they particularly are drawn to a thing. But at least for me, uh, I think that there's a lot that, that fantasy and sci-fi and some of those um, less grounded um, genres, maybe is a good way to put it, they, they bring a lot to the table with with what they can say about real life and what they can say about who we are as people and what's going on in culture and politics, because they can do it somewhat metaphorically. They can draw parallel lines that make it easier for us to, to understand or unpack some of those concepts. And, um, that's, that's ultimately, I think why, why I gravitate toward it, because I, I appreciate a much more metaphorical way of, of exploring some of those things than maybe a different book that might hit it more head on. Yeah. So when they sneak it through the back door, it goes down easier. I guess so. Maybe the, uh, the Mary Poppins spoonful of sugar. <laughs> you have kids. We'll forgive you for bringing up Mary Poppins in a discussion of the gentleman bastards. <laughs> I guess that's uh, mixing things up a little bit too much. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Aaron, what's book two? Book two uh, goes a little further back in my reading life, but it's uh, Byzantium by Stephen Lawhead. How far back does it go? Uh, I found I found Stephen Lawhead back in college and pretty much read everything by him as quickly as possible. <laughs> oh, that is a good sign. Yeah. I, this one for me, um, short story. My, when I turned 21, my parents gave me uh, a larger than usual birthday gift uh, financially and said, so here's, here's some money to uh, set yourself up for something that's important to you in life. And I chose to spend it all on really nice looking hardcover books for my library of, of things that I knew would be classics for me for the rest of my life. And, and I like five or six of them were Stephen Lawhead books because he had just captivated my imagination. Um, he writes a lot of historical fiction, um, but also kind of some of them with a, with a bit of a fantasy twist, some magic in there. And uh, all of it is is based usually around the United Kingdom and specifically in, in Celtic mythology. And and I have a little bit of Irish heritage in me, so that, that resonates with me as well. So what is it about Byzantium that landed it on your build your library for the rest of your life collection? 
This one for me is one of those sweeping epics of a story that takes me as a reader on an incredible ride. Uh, it's about um, an Irish monk named Aidan and his brothers are all on a pilgrimage to Byzantium. And the book's first line, actually, I mean, it grabbed me from the beginning. The book's first line is, I saw Byzantium in a dream and knew that I would die there. That's a good first line. Yeah. So all along this this journey, Aiden believes that that he has seen his destiny. And when their pilgrimage goes awry and they get attacked by Vikings and Aiden is enslaved, it, he starts to question his faith. And so it's this parallel story of his physical journey uh, through being a Viking and being a spy and being all these different things that he becomes in his life as a result of this journey that he began, but is also the, the parallel journey of his faith as he loses it and then wrestles with what do all these things that have happened in my life mean? That sounds like a really interesting premise, like for him to be reflecting on that in a sweeping historical epic. Those are three words I like to see go together when I'm choosing books for myself. They do work well. But I've never read Byzantium. Yeah, it's it again, it, it hits that button for me of of being an adventure, but also more than just that, because it it tackles issues that are are complex and relevant to each of us. Which fantasy can do really well. Aaron, what's your third book? My third book is if if I if I had to pick my favorite book of all time, it would be this one. And it's it's Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. I love that you chose this. Tell us more. I first read it when I was 12, the year the movie came out, and proceeded to read it every summer for about the next 10 years. And so it's just, it has stuck with me because, I mean, look, when you're 12 and there's a book about dinosaurs, and I mean, it's pretty exciting. So it's a total popcorn book. But I do like Michael Crichton because all of his books tend to seamlessly blend real science with crazy situations and ultimately lots of page-turning thrills, better than I think any other author that I've come across. Yes. And, you know, I just read a John Grisham book for the first time because my son was assigned it for summer reading. And I thought, eh, you know what, I'm just going to read this first so that someone in the family can talk to him about it if he has any questions. But I think like Crichton and Grisham kind of get the side eye sometime from imagine this thing air quotes, like serious literary readers, because you know, they're popular and they turn out a book a year and blah, blah, blah. But I was reading this Grisham novel at the pool where it's not a bad place to read, John Grisham or Michael Crichton. The first one I'd read by either of them in many years. And I was like, you know what? I forgot. The man can write. He tells, he te I think they both. And of course, like how often do you lump Grisham and Crichton in as the two examples of popular fiction? But you, I think you know what I'm getting at. Like these authors know how to tell a good story. Well, and it's the same thing for me as, as Stephen King. I, I have not. I've not read any Grisham myself, and I only just read 112263 a few months ago, and that's the only Stephen King I've ever read, because I'd always thought, oh, he's the horror guy. I know. I know, me too. But then I picked this up on, on a recommendation, and like you said, he can write. And so I think that there's a valuable thing to remember for us as readers is, is that sometimes 
sometimes just because someone has a reputation or or their books are about certain things doesn't mean that they're not well done. Exactly. That's a great way to put that. So Jurassic Park, when you first read it, you were 12 and it was a book about dinosaurs coming to life with this fun scientific twist. I just love the ending when I read it for the first time when I was probably 15, 16, something like that. I remember finishing it in German class, so I can pinpoint it within a few years. But so now Aaron, the adult, what is it that appeals to you about it? What, what makes it, if you had to choose a lifetime favorite, like the lifetime favorite? It for me is one that I can always come back to. It, it, I mean, Harry Potter is the same thing for me and for a lot of people. It's like, it's always fun to come back to, you know, you know, all the plot points, you know exactly what happens, but it's still fun to go back there and do it again. And for me, one of the neat things about Jurassic Park, the book is that it's one of the few books that I've found that coexists fairly seamlessly with its movie counterpart. They're both really good and they're both enjoyable on their own and neither makes you dislike the other, at least for me. And I think that's pretty rare too. Yes, that's a great way to put it, that neither makes you dislike the other. That is rare. Aaron, shifting gears, can you tell me about a book that didn't land for you? Yes. You know, unlike a lot of your guests, I do not have a problem picking one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually had to have to choose from a couple of different ones, but I think I'm going to go with Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood. Uh Uh-huh. Tell us everything. Well, she... For starters, I will say I'm not giving up entirely on Margaret Atwood. It was the first time I tried reading one of her books, and obviously she's very popular right now. And so I'm going to give maybe The Handmaid's Tale or certain other ones a try. But this one, I know she was trying to illustrate like the degeneration of society through the depravity of the characters, but it was too much for me. <laughs> there was too much in what way? Uh, the content. There was there were scenes. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but there were there were scenes where they were de- depicting uh, characters watching some things online that was just horrifying to me, and I just couldn't keep going. I have not read this one, although I did recently read The Handmaid's Tale and really enjoyed it. And I'm, I don't think your description of what turned you off of this book does definitely not make me want to go read it. But as a general rule, don't don't title your book after somebody's name, especially if it's an ugly name like Oryx. Right. I, I liked. Uh... It was it was interesting enough to to draw me to the book as a first try for Margaret Atwood, um, but but I, and obviously I think that what she was doing with the book was important and how she wrote it was really well done, um, but ultimately just some of those content elements uh, it just was not for me. I haven't read this one, but the way you're describing it, it sounds reminiscent of A Clockwork Orange. Is that fair, or am I totally missing it? You know, I've only seen the movie, but that's probably fair based on. If the movie is is, is like the book, uh, it's probably quite apt. <laughs> Aaron, what are you reading right now? Right now, I am reading a book called Stiletto by Daniel O'Malley. It's uh, the sequel to a book called The Rook, uh, which I also just finished, and I'm enjoying it a lot. It's uh, sort of, sort of like <laughs> this is really nerdy. It's sort of like X Men meets Harry Potter. I mean, imagine if all all across the United Kingdom various people had special powers and abilities. And when those abilities were discovered, those people were co-opted into a secret government organization whose job it is to protect the rest of the United Kingdom from supernatural threats. That sounds like a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. The author doesn't take it too seriously. It's um, 
it's pretty whimsical, but it's really well written. It's got that sort of British thing that that a lot of British authors do where they'll <laughs> they'll kind of do lists of things and the last item in the list is really quirky and so it makes the whole thing funny. <laughs> that sounds like fun. That makes me want to pick it up. Um what else are you reading or have you just finished? Um I've just finished a couple different books. I just finished and then there were none by Agatha Christie. First time? What's your relationship with Christie? And this book? Uh, it was my first time for that one. And I'd only, other, only otherwise previously read Murder on the Orient Express, which I thought was fantastic, especially the audio book that I read of it was just terrific. Ooh, good to know. And Then There Were None was fun because it was neat to see where so many of these people stuck in a mansion murder mystery tropes come from. So many of them started there. It was really great. You know, the original title, I mean, you do know, because you just read it, was 10 Little Indians. I think the new one is so much better. I agree. I, it does sort of, um, well, I, I definitely found myself wondering how spoilery the title was. It was very interesting to to wonder all the way through the book, where was it going? How was it going to resolve itself? All right. Aaron, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life? I would say for my reading life, what I'm looking for more of is books that earn their way onto my library bookshelves at home. I, I do a lot of uh, reading a book before I'm committed to owning it. And uh, at that point, I'm, I would love it if there were more books that stuck with me so, so significantly that I was interested in, in coming back to it again and again and needed to have my own copy at home. So adding a book to your personal permanent collection is a big deal. It is a big deal. Yeah. I, for me, I mean, I've moved enough times that I don't love moving books. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's a commitment. Yes. And I know that, you know, I do only have so much reading time and my TBR list is long. And to go back and reread a book, it's going to have to be good. So I would love to find more that that win a place in that in that category. I hear you. I love it when I'll read a book from the library and my reaction is, I need to buy this right now after I already read it, but because I know I want to come back to it, I want to be able to see it, I want it, you know, I want that visual reminder, I read this and it was amazing. Okay, I like the way you're thinking. And for me, this is sort of silly, but uh, I like when people come over to visit my house and they comment on the books and I can say, oh yes, have you read that one? This is you should definitely check this out. I mean, it becomes a conversation point and an opportunity for me to recommend things that I loved to somebody who maybe didn't, hadn't heard of it yet. I don't think that's silly at all. I love it. Okay. Well, Aaron, I can't wait to talk about your books and to try to put some titles on your TBR right after the break. Aaron, welcome back. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. And we've talked about books I'm familiar with, some I haven't read, but I am one of those um, hesitant fantasy readers. I read sometimes, but like after talking to you, I'm ready to march down to the bookstore and clear out the fantasy section. So this is a lot of fun. And we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Um, which of these you haven't read. It's fun between your, um, your liking for fantasy and world building and metaphor and adventure. There are so many different directions we can go. So I might try to spread these out a little amongst genres. That sounds great. Okay. So Aaron, surely you've read The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Ah, you know, that's on my list and I have not read it yet. Yeah. So maybe. So yes, interested? Yes. 
Okay. Yeah, maybe maybe it needs a boost to the top of the list. <laughs> okay, I'll see what I can do. And as we discussed, describing describing the plot or the premise of any book is a dicey proposition. Some books lend themselves really well to, um, especially like uh, thrillers or suspense or mystery. Like you describe the inciting incident, and as a reader, you think, oh. Oh, like you could do something with that idea. That sounds interesting. I want to see where the author takes it. But that's not often the case for fantasy. So I'm I'm not going to go into the plot here. But for you, I like it because it seems smack in the middle of what you love to read. For listeners everywhere, this is a total gateway fantasy pick or a fantasy book for people who don't read fantasy because it's just a great story that's really well written. It's one of those novels that just sweeps you up. And it's also gentle with some of the things a lot of readers like to avoid, like the the violence isn't over. I mean, there is violence in the story, but it aids the story. It's not overwhelming. Um, but this is the first book in a trilogy. The Name of the Wind is. It's the King Killer trilogy. This is often described as a darker Harry Potter because Rothfuss's hero, whose name is Kroos, he spends a lot of his formative years at school. And this book is told in a flashback. Like, as an old man, he's given the opportunity, telling a tr- stranger, like, where did you come from? What's your story? And so you go way back in time. And... It's hard to describe, but Rothfuss himself has said that it's hard to describe. And if he could describe it in 50 words, he wouldn't have needed to write a whole novel about the guy. It's a hero myth tale, but it's like it's seen from backstage. It's turned inside out. So instead of watching like the presentation of the grand epic, you're seeing how it came to be through the man's eyes. If you even remotely enjoy fantasy books, this is a great example of a good story well told especially if you think you don't enjoy fantasy as a genre, give this a try and see what you think. And to sell it a little harder, Lin-Manuel Miranda loves it. (laughs) That's high praise. Because that matters to some people. I know. How does that, so I didn't give you much to go on, but how does that sound to you? I like that because it doesn't sound like it's got a lot of the, the fantasy trope things that we talked about where it's relying on people's names and, and a lot of the, that sort of thing to to sell the story. It's it's about the story itself, and and I I love what you said about how if he could have said it in fifty words, he wouldn't have needed three books. Um, that that I don't know. That in and of itself, I think, uh, compels me to read it. Okay, I like the sound of that. I will be curious to hear what you think. Okay, now I'm thinking, what else to go? Which direction to take? All right, Erin, I'm thinking about a book that is really polarizing, like readers either love it or they hate it, or sometimes they love it and go, what just happened? (laughs) And sometimes they hate it and say like, get an editor, man. Um, Does that sound scary to you or does that sound intriguing? No, I'm definitely intrigued. Okay. I'm thinking of Winner's Tale by Mark Halperin. Do you know anything about it? I don't think so. Okay. So this was a Russell Crowe movie four or five years ago. I never saw it. I I heard that the the movie bore very little resemblance to the book. I didn't know this book either until a dear friend got married and she chose a passage from this book for a reading in the wedding ceremony. And 
she and her husband had become friends and then fallen in love, like in part talking about books. And this was one of those books where they were like, Oh, you've read that too. Oh, I love that book. Oh, nobody's read that book. Um, and in case you're wondering, the quote is one that starts, um, it's something like nothing is random, nor will anything ever be like from who you fall in love with to what time the milkman delivers your milk. Like it all comes together in this grand intricate, uh, not plan, but that like all the wheels are turning to move you towards your fate is the idea. So you can probably already tell from my description of that one, like paragraph wedding reading that Helprin has ambitious goals for this novel. But of course, after it's featured in a good friend's wedding, you have to read the book afterwards. Um, and I don't think I looked at Goodreads first, or I would have seen that readers love it or hate it. But when they say that it's not like any other novel they've ever read, they are not making it up. Um, but one of the reasons I like it for you is that it's packed with symbolism and metaphor. It's really deep and the writing is really, uh, carefully crafted. Not everybody loves that, but it's a story that's set in the New York of the Belle Epoque, but not quite the New York, you know, I mean, it's definitely recognizable, but there are, uh, magical creatures and, strange powers that some people have. And we have an interesting hero with his own unusual powers. His name is Peter Lake and it is the dead of winter. And the city is experiencing this series of snowfall upon snowfall that just won't stop. And it's crazy cold and everything kind of kicks into gear when he attempts to rob a serious lockdown super expensive mansion on the Upper West Side, and he thinks it empty, but the daughter of the family is at home. And these scenes are some of my favorite of the novel because it's freezing cold in New York, but she's she has tuberculosis and she's spending all her time on the roof overlooking the city and they become friends. And there's a mythical horse. There's uh, dangerous sleigh rides. There's mythical places that remind me of Tolkien in many ways. There's a lot here and it's easier for there to be a lot here because it is really, really long. Um, it's interesting and strange and you will either think, wow, this is amazing or what is happening? Never mind. I'm not sure I care. <laughs> <laughs> no, that actually sounds really interesting to me. I, um, it, it, from what you say, it reminds me of a couple books, uh, the, the Golem and the Genie. Yes. Different part of New York. I imagine the weather to be completely different, but yes. <laughs> sure. Um, and then a little bit, the way you talk about the, the language that he uses reminds me of uh, the Night Circus, which earned its way onto my shelf last year. Um, but it's not whimsical like the Night Circus is. It's, okay. it's very... The prose reads like it was very carefully put together. I'm trying so hard to avoid saying beautiful writing, but it really is lovely prose and I've like almost show offy in places. Um, and I felt that way about the night circus too, but the night, the night circus kind of has this wry tone to me mm -hmm. and winter's tale feels like, let's be quiet, lower your voice. It's time to get serious. Okay. No, that doesn't, uh, it doesn't turn me off at all. I, I think that sounds very interesting. Okay. I like the sound of that. How do you feel about going nonfiction for your book three? Let's do it. All right. I'm thinking of the lost city of the monkey God. 
subtitle, A True Story by Douglas Preston. But when this book just came out in the beginning of the year, back in January, I felt like I had to do quite a bit of Googling to be sure that when the subtitle was A True Story, it wasn't a fictional trick, but in fact, an actual real thing. So, Do you know anything about this? You know, I've heard of it. I'm actually trying to check right now to find out if I have already put this on my list to read or or if I didn't. Okay, I did. I did put this on my list to read, but but I have not done so yet. So I'm I'm interested. Okay. So Douglas Preston has written a heaping ton of bestsellers with Lee Child. Um, a lot of them are. And he has written nonfiction before. So this isn't a total departure for him. But uh, this book is going to feel like a total departure from the modern world for a lot of people. So he's a novelist. He's an explorer. And I love what Kierkegaard says about Douglas Preston, the human being. He says he's well known for two things, going out and doing things that would get most people killed and turning up ways to get killed that might not have occurred to readers beforehand, but will certainly be on their minds afterward. Okay, so (laughs) I know that sounds a little bit scary, but you're going to be reading this on your sofa in Minnesota and not in the middle of the jungle. So at least there's solace there. Imagine like a state of wonder kind of location almost. The lost city of the monkey god is a city in the Honduras that has been called historically the white city or the lost city of the monkey god. And without this, this premise is kind of interesting, but still, I don't want to go, I don't want to plot, plot, plot on you. But he talks his way into going along on an expedition to the Honduran rainforest to investigate this lost city and something that happened well a long time ago. And this is a hundred percent true story. But what I really like about it for you is because of the setting, there are so many elements of uh, fantasy and myth and witchcraft and danger and disease and all these things that novelists have to work really hard to build into their worlds so that the modern brain has some some place to escape to that feels fantastical but you don't actually need to make that stuff up like because there is plenty of fantastical elements in this very real story set in the jungle cortez explored centuries ago it sounds very much like a truth is stranger than fiction sort of yes and i also like it for you because it has great narrative drive they are on a real life adventure And there are, so you have your good guys and your bad guys, and you have the ambiguous guys, like the soldiers who are there to prevent the city from being looted. But, but one of his companions, like, oh no, 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 no. Like they're the ones here to take all the good stuff. That's what's really going to happen. Um, there are spiders and snakes and witch doctors and lingering spirits. Um, there's the feeling that something horrible is going to happen at any moment. He did come back to write the book. So that gave me solace as I was making, making my way through it. Um, but it's uh, fascinating and page turning and a little bit scary, but not too terrifying. And it's a nonfiction narrative that reads like a novel. And that alone makes me think it might be a good choice for you. I agree. I think that that will be uh, right up my alley. I, I, I love to travel 
and anything that is, you know, sort of a travel log, but also an adventure along the way. It just sounds perfect. I don't think this book is going to make you want to pack up your bags, though, and go into the jungle. (laughs) (laughs) But still, I like that you can imagine yourself along in the journey. And that may be as close as you want to get to it. Sounds good. I, I recently read The Ruins by Scott Smith. And, and this, uh, it, it didn't love the way it ended up. Um, it was good. But this sounds like maybe it will be the sort of book that um, sort of fulfills the promise of what that other one could have been. Maybe maybe you just leave that whole thing out. Never mind. That didn't go a good place. <laughs> Real, no, I liked, I thought that was interesting, actually. Okay. Well, I will cross my fingers. It works out. Aaron, of these three books, what do you think you'll read next? Wow, that's a tough one. I will probably, I mean, I'm going to read them all. Um, I like The Winter's Tale. I might move that to the top of my list. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thank you for having me. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Aaron today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Aaron and to let him know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 87, and it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.